in uh, Genesis chapter 39. We've been walking through the book of Genesis. I think we're uh, pushing on a year here. I don't remember when we started it uh, last, but I think we're getting close. And so uh, we walk through books of the Bible here at Outward Church, and we just do that slowly and methodically. And so uh, we'll probably be done, Lord willing, with uh, Genesis sometime uh, early September, depending on how quickly I preach through these next few passages. And so uh, it's been pretty awesome. I don't know if you've seen the progression of what's happening in the book of Genesis, but the book of Genesis is really talking about how God uh, is, it has established all things. He's created all things. He created man. He called the people to himself through this guy, Abraham. Uh, supernaturally changes his mind, has him leave a pagan country, and Abraham goes and follows God, and then there's Isaac, and then there's Jacob, and, and here we are in the story of Joseph. And if you re- remember it all from uh, several weeks ago, I, can't, I guess it was four weeks ago probably, uh, when I, I, probably three weeks ago that I preached here last, uh, we were in Genesis chapter 37, um, no, chapter 38, that's right. So chapter 38 was a digression, was a, was a kind of a, a, a left turn, if you will, from what, what had happened. So the, the story of Joseph uh, begins about in uh, Genesis uh, 37, and then all of a sudden uh, in chapter 38, you have this story about Judah and Tamar, and Judah is uh, Joseph's older brother, and Judah is uh, just kind of a a swarthy dude uh, a a little bit, not a great guy, at least not at this stage in his life. And uh, Judah has some monkey business, and he ends up up, uh, taking a prostitute, or having a prostitute, sleeping with a prostitute, I should say. And that prostitute ended up being his daughter-in-law. And it it was just a kind of a gross story. There's other details that I don't even want to say out loud anymore, but... um, it was kind of a weird digression, but here we go, and we return back to the life of Joseph. And so we've heard about uh, Judah and Tamar, and then uh, before that was, was Reuben, another brother, and he had some sexual exploits that were uh, off track as well. And, and so here we are at Joseph again, and really what the scripture is trying to show us is kind of highlighting the character of Joseph over his brothers, uh, why Joseph is, is a special dude in this sense. But this story of Joseph is, is really just kind of a heartbreaking story. It's kind of a long story. It takes up the rest of Genesis, really. And what it's really telling us about is it's telling us about uh, how this guy, who's a great guy, had a lot of horrible things that happened to him. He had a, a lot of terrible things that, that had taken place in his life. And I, I don't know about you, what you feel like you've, you've been into um, or, or how, you've, uh, how you've been treated or, or what the experiences of your life have, have been like. But oftentimes when we view the experiences of our, our lives, we can oftentimes misconstrue the way that, that we should look at them. We look at the experiences of our lives and we say, well, if this hadn't happened or if this hadn't taken place or if, that, if, if this had been different or if this person hadn't totally screwed me over or if my wife hadn't left or if my husband hadn't left or if this person hadn't cheated on me or if that hadn't taken place, then life would have been different for me. And if these things had, had happened, then, uh, you know, then, then I, my life would have been in a completely different direction. I know in my own life, as I look back over the, the difficult things that have happened in my past, the, the breakdown of my 
uh, my family of origin, uh, the, the various things that took place in, in those situations, the ways that I felt slighted in different places that I worked or people that I had um, felt like I had put trust in who broke that trust. And there, there's different times in my life where I think I've felt sorry for myself and said, you know, if, if I had come from a different family or if I had been in different circumstances or if, if, if these things hadn't happened in this way, then life would have been different for me. And I don't know how you view that, but here we have a shining example of this guy, Joseph, who really is what we call a type of Christ. He's a, he's, there's very few people in the Bible, by the way, who are really shining examples of great character, but Joseph is one of them. And he really highlights and he points forward to Jesus. But we're going to talk through the life of Joseph here a little bit, not through the entire thing, chapter 39, um, and talk about um, some really incredible things that happen in his life. Let me read the chapter for you, and then we'll, uh, we'll get going on that. Chapter 39, verse 1 says this, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Is that how she said it? I don't know how she said it, but it, it just sounds creepy. Lie with me. Anyway, okay, verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day... When he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard, uh, as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. And he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by, by her until his master came home. 
And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way that your, your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It's a pretty uh, stirring story. There's a lot of morals in here that we can talk about. We don't normally talk about, uh, you know, we don't talk about moralistic teaching very often. Talking about little points of pragmatic uh, things uh, for our lives. Uh, but we want to today, because I think this has a lot of great things for us. Um, however, we will always uh, end with Jesus and talking about how Jesus is the one true uh, Joseph. He's the greater Joseph. Um, but this story is pretty compelling. And it's compelling uh, for a number of reasons. But the biggest reason is this. If you look back at, at uh, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. It says it again in verse 3. The Lord was with him. And then it says, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And then it says in verse 21 and uh, 23, again, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph. So one of the main things that we can see throughout this passage is this, is that God wants us to see something, and that is that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And so let's look at his life here. First of all, we see in verse 3 that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Our success is so much about what God is doing in our world and in our lives and in our work and in the things that we're doing. The Lord is the one who causes success. And so often what happens is this, is that we come to a place, to a successful place in life. And we get a, a, a big head sometimes. And we say, somehow, I have made this take place. I have made this happen. I have gotten myself into this situation. Rather than looking back to God and saying, God, you are the one who has caused these things and allowed these things to take place in my life. You are the one who is working behind the scenes to bring about favor in my life. But I believe what is happening in Joseph's life is that Joseph is a, is a man, a young man at that. He's 17 years old when he's taken into captivity. He's 17 when he goes into service uh, for this guy Potiphar, most likely. And so here he is as a 17-year-old, as a young man, and he's beginning a career, a career that he doesn't want to be in. He's, uh, he's a slave, but here he is working under an Egyptian slave master, and God is prospering the work that he does. And so it says in verse 4 that Joseph found favor in his sight. And so much favor that he became an attendant to this Egyptian master. So even though he's been wronged greatly, even though he is somebody who has been dealt a bad hand, something about Joseph's life 
And really, it has to do with the Lord working in his life, the Lord's presence in his life, and, and, and so forth, that bring about this favor so much so that he becomes an attendant to his master, and then his master makes him an overseer. And if you were to look at these next few verses, it says, and he put him in charge of all that he had. Verse, uh, verse 5 says the same thing. Uh, from the time that he made him an overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. And so here we have Joseph. He's a young man. He's worked his way up until he's an uh, attendant. And then pretty soon he's in charge of all that he had. It says all that he had four times in these verses all the way through into the beginning of verse 6. But here is a guy who has worked his tail off. One commentator was talking about how it's not that Joseph uh, just kind of was on autopilot. It's not that he was just somebody who was just uh, punching a clock and just saying, any day now I'm going to get out of here. It's not that Joseph was doing that. It's that Joseph had to have been working above and beyond for someone who was his slave master. And he's working so hard that he gains the trust of this guy. He gains the trust of Potiphar. So much so that Potiphar says, I want to give you all that I have to take care of. I want to give you everything that I have because I trust you so much with my wealth, with my riches, with my livestock, with my home. I trust you around my wife. I trust you around my kids. I trust you in everything that I have. And the, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is this. Are we people who are working in the community that we live, in the, in the jobs that we have, are we people who somebody could say to you, like, I want to trust you with all that I have. I can trust you because you've never taken advantage of me. You've never, you've never marked your time as uh, more than what it actually is on your time card. You've never cheated anybody. You are somebody who is regularly helping other employees. You're somebody who's helping me. This is somebody who worked very diligently. He had to have been the slave that was up first in the morning. He was getting things ready. He was learning things. He was watching what was happening in all of these different areas. Think about all of the things that he had to have been uh, over and how specifically he was looking at each part of this, of this business, of this home, and he was learning what's happening in these sectors. And he's growing as a manager. He's got on-the-job training. And here he is as somebody who is representing God well. He's representing God so well. You look back in verse 3. It says, his master saw that the Lord was with him. His master, it, it was so clear that he was such a hard worker and that everything he touched, in essence, succeeded or turned to gold or whatever. Everything that he did was so successful that his master saw this. His master is an Egyptian who has multiple gods that he worships. His master is somebody, he's a deplorable human being. He owns another human being. Here he is, and yet he sees the light in this guy. Men and women, 
do your employers see the light of Christ in your life? Have you worked so hard that they can see that the favor of God is in your life? Can they see that the favor of God is working in you and through you? Can they see what is taking place? Have they grown in trust of you or do they continue to lack trust in you because you continue to whatever? Where are you at with that? Another aspect of this is this. When you're on God's program, when you're serving Jesus with your life, when you're like Joseph, who's wholly committed to God and wholly committed to his work in your life and the knowledge of his presence with you, do you realize that the efforts that you put in may or may not serve to advance your career or to line your pockets or to get you more money. See, the thing about Joseph is that Joseph really didn't have any other reason to serve his master. He had no reason to serve him. He had no reason to honor him with this. What's he going to do? He's going to honor him. He's going to serve him. He's going to build trust with him. He's going to advance this guy Potiphar. And Potiphar's going to get rich. Joseph's not going to get rich. Potiphar's the one that's getting rich. Do you realize that the, the truth is that all of your hard work in the name of Jesus may very well go toward someone else's pockets or someone else's advancement. See, that is what we come to the table in our work with. That's what we come to the table with, that I'm here to be sacrificial with the people around me, to give them something, to give of myself for their advancement, for for their growth, for their enrichment. Why? Because I don't represent me. I don't represent the world. I represent the the God that I serve. I represent Yahweh. I represent that God, and the way that I work describes the God that I serve. The way that I work, the way that I present myself, how much I work, whether I work at all, whether I'm supporting my family, whether I'm making advancement. That describes the God that I serve. And when when all of those things are evident in your life, oftentimes what's true about you is that you don't have a correct view of this God. Now, you can get totally into this working hard and so that you're building your career and your life and all all of those things and you can get so wrapped up in that that you can get sucked into that life as well there's a ditch on both sides of this road but we describe the god that we serve with the way that we work and this is what joseph was doing he was describing this god he's showing who this god is and he's really kind of doing what first peter Chapter 2, verse 12 says, which is, 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that's people who do not know God, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That we are to be a community of people who represent God so well that they are going to be looking forward to the return of God on the day of visitation. This is the example that we live with. That this is the way that we should live. Verse 6 continues and says this. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. This guy was like a Calvin Klein model or whatever. I don't know, probably a lot like me a few years ago. But, uh, I mean, he's just a beautiful man. Are you laughing at me? Like what? I stopped modeling for this, just so you know. But... Uh, yeah, in any case, so jo- Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, J- Joseph is a good-looking guy, and he is a guy who, uh, there's, there, I think he's the only guy, if I remember correctly, in the Scripture that says that he was a good-looking man. Uh, here he is. He's, he's a good-looking dude. He does physical labor all day long. I don't know if the pictures are, are real, but, you know, they have the little Egyptian kilt and then, you know, no shirt on and like some gold thing around their neck. I mean, he was, he was a beautiful specimen. And why wouldn't Mrs. Potiphar like this guy? I mean, this guy, he is a good-looking guy. And so she casts her eyes on him. She begins to lust after Joseph. And so she just very bluntly says, lie with me. Which in, in like the NIV, I think, and maybe uh, some other uh, translations of the Bible, it says, come to bed with me. This is a woman who gets what she wants when she wants it. She's probably also an attractive woman. I mean, she's rich. She has a lot of money, had some work done, all kinds of things going on in her life. I mean, she's, just, she's also probably a beautiful older woman. Sometimes we call them a cougar, but that's, that's besides the point. So here she is. She's this beautiful woman, and she is after Joseph, and she says, come to bed with me. And the question you have to ask yourself is you have to ask, like, why not? Why not go to bed with this woman? He's 17 years old. He gets ripped out of his family's home into slavery. Why in the world would he believe that God was still working in his life? There's no reason for him to believe that God is there. He has every reason to believe that all of the success that he's achieved in his life, all of the things that have happened in his life, he has every reason to believe that he brought that about. I did this hard work. I'm the one who got up early. I'm the one who learned how to manage people. I'm the one who who learned the Egyptian language. I'm the one who did all of these things. I mean, this proposition comes to him in a time when he has experienced accomplishment, promotion, advancement, there's no reason to believe that God even exists at this point at all. At all. And it's a, it's a vulnerable point in his life. It's a vulnerable, a vulnerable point in all of our lives. When you add in pressure... When you add in success after hard work, 
Add in a little bit of exhaustion, time not taken off. You add in some weakness there because you've been working so hard that you haven't had time for God. You haven't haven't had any, any time to understand who he is. Your work has been your everything. You add in all of those things, and then, you, and then you add on top of that opportunity. And there's many, many, many of us who would fail and have failed in some respect in this way because sex in the midst of those types of situations or sex substitutes like pornography are the things that seem to feed that, that seem to... Uh, make us feel like, like we're okay for some reason. And here is Joseph. He's in the middle of this decision time. She casts her eyes on him and she says, come to bed with me. And how does he respond? It says in verse 8, but he refused and he said to his master's wife. So the first thing that he did was he, he refused. He said no. And then he goes into this dialogue or this statement which says, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. So Joseph, uh, one of the first reasons, I don't think it's the biggest reason, but the first thing that he says is that the most obvious thing is this, is that I have built trust with this guy Potiphar, with your husband, and he has put everything under my charge. He values his integrity. He values the fact that this guy has trusted him. And in that, one of the things that he's doing is he's acknowledging the fact that there's a person behind this. There's somebody who's going to be hurt here. There's somebody that I'm sinning against. Look at what the next thing that he says is in verse 9. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. So he says, he says this. He's given me all of these things. There's only one thing that he's kept from me, and it's just you. But let me tell you what human nature does. Human nature, since the beginning of time, since the beginning of Adam and Eve, they, they could have anything that they wanted in the garden. God says, there's just one thing, just one thing that I want you to stay away from. Why do we always want the one thing that we are not supposed to have? And here is Joseph, and he's acknowledging the truth about this. I have all of these other things that have come to me because of God's favor in my life, because of the trust that I've built with this man, and, but you are the one thing that he's kept from me. Why would I violate this? And so then he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he rightly diagnoses What's happening here? He calls this adulter- this potential, uh, potentially 
uh, adulterous relationship or potential adulterous relationship. He calls it great wickedness. He calls it what it is. This is sin. It's not just something that, I, that I'm going to do because, you know, I'm, you know, he's 17. Maybe he's 20 at this point. In fact, I don't think he is. I think he's quite a bit older, actually. He's older. Who knows? He, I, my guess is this guy has not been sexually active on any level. His hormones are going crazy. I don't know what's going on with this woman, but I'm sure that he sees her. But he rightly calls it great wickedness, even though everything in his life says, you know what? Why is it so bad? The guy who's married to her has been a slave master. I mean, think about all of the ways that he could justify his sin. That guy's sinning against me. He's not a great husband. He's verbally abusive to her. He's never around. She needs love. See, that, that is also human nature. It's to minimize what it is that my heart is drawn towards. Especially when it comes to sex. We always minimize the sin that we want to sexually partake in. We minimize the sin. It's not that bad. We minimize... Uh, the, the relationship, because you know what? We're probably getting married anyway, so why don't we just start sleeping together? We minimize the fact that maybe we're struggling with same-sex attraction and we're on the verge of entering into that relationship, or maybe we already have, and we're tempted to listen to everything that the world says about same-sex attraction and say, you should just do it. It's love. And so you should just enter into that. Even though there are numerous examples in Scripture of that being condemned as an acceptable lifestyle. Just like adultery and fornication or anything like that. We minimize it. Instead of calling it great wickedness, we say it's a lifestyle choice. Instead of calling it great wickedness, we say, my husband was abusive to me. And so that was the only thing that I could do. Instead of calling it great wickedness, we say it's, you know, it's not, we didn't really go all the way. But those are sins that Jesus paid for on the cross. Jesus went to the cross for that great wickedness. Jesus went to the cross to pay for that. And the question is whether we truly want to call sin what it is so that we're able to even repent of it. If you can't call sin, sin, then you can't repent of it. You're not repenting of that sin if you can't <coughs> call it sin. You can't repent of it. You can't confess it. And so this is where we find ourselves oftentimes. I know that there's many, many, many of us in this room that have, all of us, to some degree or another, have minimized our sin and called it something other than wickedness. But the second thing that he says is he says, and sin against God. And this is where we find out the true character, on some level, of Joseph. See, Joseph doesn't just look at the fact that, hey, uh, this guy has had a lot of trust in me and he's given me all this stuff. I don't want to screw that up. He doesn't just look at that. 
He doesn't just look at the, the fact that uh, this could cause major problems in his life and the fact that it was sin, but it's, it's sin primarily against God. It is a sin that is against God so much so that it's, it, it is, it's, it's deplorable to him. David, King David says in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When you look at the life of King David, if you remember that story or know that story at all, David sees Bathsheba. She's bathing. I don't know why she's bathing outdoors or whatever, but uh, he, he sees her. He has sex with her. He uh, impregnates her. And so what does he do? He has her husband killed. And so as David is coming to terms with the fact that he's been confronted with this, he goes to God and he says, it's, it's not that I haven't sinned just against Bathsheba or just against Uriah or all of Israel and the people that I, I've broken their trust. He says, so much, so I've sinned so much or I've sinned so, uh, so badly. And he looks at his sin and he says, it is against you, you only. That our sin is not just against the person that we're sinning with or against. Our sin is against God. And if we do not have a view of the reality that I'm sinning against a holy God, a gracious God, I'm taking advantage of his graciousness and his mercy. If we do not have that view and see that, we're completely missing it. Joseph gets it. And he says, it's great wickedness and it's sin against God, besides the fact it's against Potiphar and all the trust that he has in me. Do you understand that your sin is against God? See, the way forward for stopping to minimize your sin is to understand that it is first and foremost primarily against God. Verse 10 says, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Day after day. She's relentless. He's in the house with her. I have no idea how she's dressed, but I can imagine that she's trying to allure him. He's having to bounce his eyes constantly like, whoa. Day after day, it's relentless. And he has to be there. He's a slave. Day after day after day after day, he's having to deal with the fact that, I mean, he, he's a human young man. And be, and, and be truthful about this to God and say, God, there's a part of me that wants this, but he has to resist Day in and day out. And so what does he do in order to resist? He would not listen to her. He would not listen to her. Now, oftentimes people sometimes get offended, especially in, in Proverbs, because Proverbs is talking about the, uh, the deceitful woman or the woman uh, who is, who, I'm forgetting the... Uh, the forbidden woman, I think is it what it often refers to this woman as. And people sometimes get offended by this, but that's, the Proverbs is a letter to a son. And he's saying, watch out for this kind of woman because he's a man. 
But we could say the same thing in the other direction. Uh, a woman could send a letter to her daughter and say, watch out for this swarthy guy that just wants to get you in bed. But in this situation, what we see is this, is that we have this, this woman who's going after Joseph, and he wouldn't listen to her. And I think we can take some really great pointers from this, guys. Is that oftentimes in these types of situations, gals need to understand that sometimes you just want a guy that listens to you, that will hear you, that will have conversation with you. And that's oftentimes the way that these relationships begin. And men sometimes, when they're about to get into an adulterous situation, oftentimes don't realize when they say, I'm just talking to her. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm just talking with her. But Joseph knew better and he didn't listen to her because he didn't want to hear the propositions from her. He didn't want his mind to run with possibilities. He didn't want to get into this situation with her. And so he did not even begin a conversation. And if you want to stay out of adulterous situations, then my advice to you is to not even talk to that person. If it's not possible, at work, you leave it to work-related things. And do not get personal. You do not talk about their spouse who is not what they hoped that he or she would be. That kind of thing. It always begins with talking. The second thing that he did was he would not lie beside her. He did not put himself in a compromising position. Because here we have sexual desire, which is a good gift from God. And our bodies tend to go on autopilot when they get into these situations. Our bodies go into autopilot as we get comfortable with someone, as we, get, as we, as we, we have inappropriate touching. And that doesn't mean necessarily sexual touching. I just mean like an extended hug, a kiss on the cheek, or those kinds of things. He wouldn't even lie beside her, and you should not put yourself in those positions. You should not put yourself in that, in that kind of a position to be somebody who is involved in that. The third thing that he did is that he would not even be with her. He did not go out for drinks after work. He did not sit and have a private conversation with her. He did not do anything with her or around her if he did not have to. If she was in the house, she, he's working, that's fine, but he was not with her. He was not with her. In our day and age, there's many people who are being criticized for uh, what is called, often called the Billy Graham rule. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, had a rule, and that is that he was never alone with a woman other than his wife without somebody else there. And so Vice President Pence was criticized for this, I believe. Some other politicians, bigwigs, people like that. Just read an article the other day. Uh, you know, I, I don't even know why this was on uh, NBC or something, but the, the article said... You know, so-and-so from down south who's a candidate for governor says he will not allow a woman to accompany him on 
the trail because he doesn't have anybody else who's going to be traveling with him. He's a no-name candidate, I think, who's trying to make his way in, in the political field, and so he doesn't have the money to hire somebody to be with him so that this female reporter can be, uh, be there with him. How many times have people fallen into this? I think there's a, a general who fell into this some time ago as well. And here this guy said, I will not, I, I cannot allow you to be with me because I will not be with anyone other than my wife. And our world, and pe- people from secular culture say, that's ridiculous because now you're impugning, or you're, you're impugning that woman by saying, you're going to come after me. And it's putting all this blame on this woman. And nobody ever said that. The fact of the matter is, I don't know about any other woman. The fact of the matter is, the reason why I don't do that is because I don't trust myself. I don't want to be in that position. It it says nothing about her. It says everything about how we've been created as sexual beings. And that sin comes in and distorts all of my thoughts and feelings and actions. I was talking with a, a young man who's a young youth pastor at seminary some time ago, and he said, I don't want to have to do that to uh, the young women in my ministry because I don't want to keep them from being able to excel in their career um, as an intern or something like that. And I think that people are going to look down on me. And I, and I told the guy, I said, to heck with everybody who wants to criticize you because you will not be alone with another woman. Who cares if they say that? At least you'll still have your marriage. Everything else be damned. You still have your marriage. You still have a marriage. Don't sacrifice that by giving into what people think that you should do. I, I cannot be more clear about this. Every single one of us needs to be very careful. And not to be fearful, but to be careful. Be in appropriate relationships. Don't have inappropriate conversations about personal things with someone else's wife or husband. Don't get too close to someone. Don't be with someone that you feel your heart drawn to. You feel your heart flutter over. Don't, don't, avoid that. Stay away from that. Joseph was smart in this. And so he avoided her. He wasn't using the Billy Graham rule. He was using the, the Joseph rule. So it says in verse 11, none of the men were in the house. She caught him by the garment. She said again, lie with me. What did he do? He left his garment. I heard one commentator, or read one commentator saying that it was probably like a, you know, some type of a giant t-shirt, which sounds really uncomfortable, but uh, he's wearing wearing a giant t-shirt. And uh, so she grabbed it and he like slipped out of it or something like that. And so there he is standing in his briefs and if they have briefs at that point, he's out of there. So, who knows? The point is this, is that the guy relentlessly ran from a woman who was relentlessly chasing him. And he upheld what 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 verse 18 says, which says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. See, Joseph knew that this would be a wickedness that's against God, and he was so committed to that that it did not matter what she said or what she did. He got out of there. 
And so it says in verse 13 through verse 20, which I don't have time to review with you. It just basically says that she just tells this giant lie. This giant lie about him. She lies and lies and lies. And here he is, a guy who's been working to enrich this owner. Enrich this business owner. Enrich this guy, the captain of the guard. And he has made it so far. And instead of advancing his career by doing what his slave master's wife wants, he puts his career at risk. And men and women, that is what oftentimes what we need to do in matters of character. That we risk our career for the sake of living rightly before God as though he is with us. Because he is. And so that's what happens. And it says at the end of verse 20, he was there in prison. Now, I don't know what was going through Joseph's mind, but Joseph is now in an Egyptian prison, which is not a nice place to be. It's not a good place to be a part of. It says in uh, Psalm chapter 105, verse 18, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. That's a proverb or a psalm about Joseph himself. And so here he is. He goes into a very nasty place. So he has had great character and built the trust of his, his, his master. He's had great character. Even when no one was looking, no one would know. And yet he resists the temptation to enter into sexual sin. And for, from my perspective, as I look at this, you, you've got to be thinking like, hey, God, after all that I have put into this, after I have worked so hard to honor you and to glorify you, by working hard and then also resisting sexual sin, for you to put me in this place where now he's in prison, what in the world could be going through his mind? What in the world? Like, God, why would you allow this to take place? Well, here's the truth. Bad things do happen to good people. But the real truth is this, is that bad things happen to bad people. See, we think oftentimes that I'm, I'm, I'm so, I've done so many good things for you, God. I've, I've, I've been truthful about this and I haven't sinned in this way. And God, you should be honoring me. You should... You should be giving me what I want right now. I'm trying to climb the ladder here. And yet what we see is that he is in prison. But it says in verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. And more than just being with Joseph, he showed him steadfast love. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Does this sound familiar? The beginning of chapter 39 and the end of it. Our book ended with the reality of that God is with Joseph. God is with Joseph in good times, and God is with Joseph in bad times. God is working when there's plenty, and God is working when there is need. It says in verse 22, And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there... He was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Here's the reality about Joseph. 
is that Joseph knows something that you and I need to know. And that is that just because the wheels have fallen off my life, what I think has happened in my life, just because things are not going the way that I want them to go, just because my world has fallen apart, does not mean that God has left me. Just because I resisted and, and, and then I still ended up in prison does not mean that I did something wrong. It means that God has something different planned. See, Joseph was a slave, it sounds like, for about 11 years. So 11 years of his life, he's working hard, he's resisting temptation, and God's with him all the way through it. Here's some stuff for you. Many of us are young in this room, or younger, just starting our careers, or trying to figure out what we want to do for our careers. Don't expect your world to change at the drop of a hat because you were good in one situation. Joseph, over and over again, has to build trust again, now with another person in a worse situation. And yet he's the same person in every situation. He works hard in every situation. He has great character in every situation. And it didn't just last for a year. It lasted for 11 years. One of the great problems from this generation is the belief that I should have arrived already, I should have a giant paycheck with everything paid for and all of this and that and the other thing. And some of us need to go back and talk to our parents or to our parents' parents and hear about how their life went and understand that God still works through difficulty. God works through success for sure, but God works through building our character through the difficulties in our life. And some of us have grown up in families that have been uh, horrible or not so good, and we feel like we've been uh, screwed over. And so we complain about that. If you hadn't done this, or if you guys had done that, or if my dad had been different, or if my mom had been different, or if I had grown up in a different social class, and we want to give excuse after excuse after excuse, and we want to say, like, if these problems hadn't been there, then I would be in a different place. And so here we are in a place sometimes where we're rejecting God because bad things have happened to us, but we do not understand who this God is that is with us. We don't understand him. We don't understand the reality that he's building our character. He's, he's building us from the ground up. He tears us down in order that we can be built back up it said back in Psalm 105, it, in, in fact, Psalm 105, verse 16, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, who is he? It's God. God's the one that orchestrated the famine? Yeah. God's the one that orchestrates the famine, that necessitates his people being saved. And so he's like, he's not like, oh, crud, I started a famine. I forgot about my people there. Let's send Joseph ahead. of. No, God, God like plans this whole thing. And we just go, God, how could you plan this whole thing in this way? And God says, I'm God. I don't care what you think. I do what I want, when I want, however I want. 
So God orchestrates a famine. And then it says in verse 17 of Psalm 105, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. It says again, his feet were hurt with, with fetters. His neck was put in an iron collar. And, and then it says in verse 19, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Do you realize that in the midst of all of your struggle, in all of the ways that you feel like you've been slighted, in the ways that you think that you should have had something different happen to you, in all of the ways that you say, you know what, God, I honored you in this, and this is the stuff you give me? I've been sexually pure, and you haven't given me a spouse? I've, I've resisted this stuff and resisted this desire for this illicit sexual relationship, and yet you haven't taken it from me. And God is, is sitting there, and he's working on you, and he's using difficulty and trial. But don't forget that he also uses success. Because when success comes, that, my friends, oftentimes is when the rubber meets the road as to whether we can even tell whether you have a relationship with God. Because people come to church when they can't make rent. And people come to church when, when something horrific happens in their life. Or when there's great disaster. But will people continue in relationship with God when the wheels are back on of the new car and the house is paid for and you have the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the fiance or the new marriage. See, God's promise to us is this. I'm with you. God tells Abraham, I'm going to be with you. My, I'm giving you my presence. You've been blessed in order to be a blessing. God's continual promise is, I will be with you throughout the Old Testament. And then it says this about Jesus in Luke, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear you a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then it says this, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, Jesus comes, and it's, it's literally God with us. It's God with us. And what does Jesus show us? Jesus show us, shows us that he lives a perfect life by the plan of God. But he also endures a brutal death by the plan of God. And yet, he doesn't falter. He doesn't sin. He's the better Joseph. He doesn't do any of those things. In fact, he goes like a, a, a sheep to the slaughter without saying a word. And he goes to the cross and he dies out and he bleeds for you. But then when he ascends to heaven... He tells his disciples, and lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age, by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Men and women, God is with you because of Jesus. God is with you. Do you realize that God's with you? Do you see 
that he's a part of your life? Do you understand that he is with you? Do you live in that reality? Or do you pay a penance to God, occasionally attending church, giving occasionally out of the extra that you have, being marginally involved in him? Or are you somebody, somebody who's deeply committed to the reality that the living God lives in me? I will not commit this wickedness that would be against God. I will work hard for the people that I work for to bring glory to the God who is in me. That is what Joseph was concerned about. That is what God is asking you to be concerned about. And he went to the cross for all of the ways that you failed in that. So this morning as we go to the Lord's table and invite the band forward, as we go to the Lord's table, one of the things that we can think about is this, is that Jesus went to the cross for us in order to be with us forever. Jesus went to the cross in order to be with us forever in our good times and our bad, in the moments when we think we're doing what's right and in the moments when we know that we're doing what's wrong. Jesus is with us in and through that. And do we recognize that? This morning can be a turning point for you. If you're somebody that hasn't lived that way, if you're somebody who hasn't lived as though God is with you, like you've been a Christian in name only, or maybe you've never even been a Christian, but maybe this morning this could be a turning point for you where you could say, I want to look to Jesus as the promise that he, is, that he can be with me forever and ever, and I can be with him forever and ever. Jesus went to the cross for that, and the Lord's Supper is about that. It's about his broken body and his shed blood for you. So this morning we celebrate that Jesus went to the cross together as his people. And if you're one of those people that just doesn't have a relationship with God, this morning you can confess to him that you don't even know the wickedness that you have in your heart. You don't even know the depths of all that that is. But the one thing that you can be convinced of is this, is that there are many, many things in my life and in your life that have been wicked in his sight and that they've been against him. To confess that and then repent of that and ask Jesus to be in your heart forever and ever because he will be with you. And then to take the elements, to confess that, partake of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and pray to him and then tell one of us before you go. We'd love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would work in our lives. Lord, allow us to hear from you this morning. Lord, awaken our spirits. Those of us that have been in the midst of just not really even knowing where we stand with you. Lord, for those of us that have forgotten about you, for the ways that we have sinned against you and other people, Lord, there's some in this room that have deep regret over deep sins. And Lord Jesus, those are sins that you went to the cross for, and we're so grateful for that. Lord, I pray that we would enter into that reality this morning that you've forgiven us. Lord, we probably don't feel forgiven right now. Lord, I pray that they would confess to a close Christian friend, to somebody here at the church, what they're going through. Lord, that we could pray for them. 
We thank you for what you're going to do in our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.